When referring to people we know and get on with, we often talk about a circle of friends. And it's an interesting and apt description because it applies that we make distinctions between people. Uh, There are those who we know and get on with who are within the circle of friends, and there are those who are outside it. Often these uh, circle of friends form around uh, shared interests or points of contact. And if somebody moves into our area and we like the look of them, we'll try and include them in our circle of friends. Well, in the passage that we're looking at this evening, we come across two separate circle of friends. On the first hand, there is Levi and his friends. And on the other hand, there are the Pharisees. And we see how these two circle of friends relate to each other. And more importantly, how Jesus relates to them. Jesus has burst on the scene. He's arrived in Galilee and he stunned the crowds by his teaching and miracles. He's been preaching about the kingdom of God and calling on people to repent and believe in the good news. The good news about God establishing his rule over humankind. And as Jesus is teaching the crowds, he sees a fellow Jew called Levi, a tax collector, at his booth. He was most probably kind of taxing the fishermen as they landed their catch. Now, tax collectors were the lowest form of Jewish life at that time. Uh, They were traitors who collaborated with the Roman authorities and made their money by cheating their own countrymen. A tax collector had the same status in Jewish society as a Gentile slave. Because of their trade, they were barred from being a witness in any Jewish court, and they were automatically excommunicated from the synagogue. They were viewed with the same disgust as human traffickers and uh, pedophiles are today in our society. And I imagine with the same loathing that Ukrainians have of their countrymen who have kind of willingly cooperated with the Russian invaders. Yet it seems as if Jesus singles out Levi. He goes up to him and specifically commands Levi to follow him. And we read that Levi gets in, gets up, hands in his notice, and follows Jesus. The next thing we read, Levi is throwing a dinner party for Jesus and his disciples, and he invites all along his uh, uh, old colleagues and other friends who are described as sinners. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw what Jesus was doing, they were most put out. Why does he eat with these people, they ask? Now, because in the Gospels, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come in for so much stick from Jesus, we often think that they're sort of public enemy number one. But your average first century Jew would have respected the Pharisees. They were devout God-fearers. Their religion touched their pocket. There wouldn't have been any scandals about them in the tabloids. Uh, To put it in Anglican terms, they would have gone to church every Sunday. They'd have attended a life group, the monthly prayer meeting, 
and have been stalwarts at the parochial church council. They would have definitely been at the APCM on May the 10th. (laughs) What is more, didn't they have a point in the question they asked? Should a man who claims to be from God be spending his time with those who are completely godless? Doesn't Psalm 1, which we said at the beginning, declare, blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. But here is Jesus eating with sinners, a sign of friendship and acceptance. Surely Jesus, by his actions, is condoning their sin. And when Jesus hears of their complaint, he says to them, verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill, the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What we're going to do this evening is to think first about Jesus' diagnosis of the human condition and then about the deliverance he brings. So first, the diagnosis Jesus makes. In the first 17 verses of uh, chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel, Mark's focus is on forgiveness. In recording the the previous incident, the healing of the paralytic, Mark has demonstrated not only that uh, forgiveness is humanity's greatest need, but Jesus is the one who is able to meet it. He can forgive, has the authority to forgive sins. Now, in this incident, we're awakened to the extent of the problem. In verse 17, Jesus describes himself as a doctor, and his speciality is not cancer or or orthopedics, although he's already shown that he can deal with all those. No, his speciality is sin. This is the disease that God has sent Jesus into the world to deal with. And as a good doctor, Jesus doesn't want to waste his time with those who are Fit and well, Jesus hasn't come uh, for the righteous, but sinners. The trouble with the Pharisees is that they didn't think they were sick sinners. They drew a distinction between themselves and Levi and his friends. And that is always a temptation. For those who have been brought up to have good manners and a clear sense of right and wrong. It's very easy to look down with disdain on those who wander around kind of pisses a newt in Soho or who are dealing in drugs or who are openly racist. You think, that, well, there's a, there's a fundamental difference between us and uh, sex traffickers. And gang members. There's an amusing letter which the, the Duchess of Buckingham wrote to Lady Huntington after she'd heard George Whitfield, the great preacher in the 18th century. This is a letter which was written a few years ago. This is what she wrote. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. (laughs) 
But it isn't just snobs in the 18th century who think that way. When I was a a vicar in Chesham, I gave a talk to a mother's union meeting on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, which has the uh, exhortation to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And one of the ladies came up to me afterwards and said they didn't think that anybody in that room had any sin that they needed to throw off. Moral pride is very dangerous indeed. It blinds us to our true situation, and if we think of ourselves as basically moral and upright, well, then Jesus can do nothing for us. For Jesus hasn't come to call the righteous. He hasn't come to make good people better. That's not what he's about. Verse 17 is a very uncomfortable verse for all those who think that they are basically good, righteous. And sadly, it seems to suggest that there'll be many good people, respectable people, even religious people, who get a shock on the judgment day. I love the definition of a Christian which is a Christian is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Morally, spiritually, that is all we ever are, beggars. Over the years, I've known uh, personally a number of people who have been involved in a Christian uh, ministry, leading Bible studies and the such like, even churches who have uh, tragically uh, fallen into gross sin. They've had affairs and the scandal has come out. And when I was younger and heard of such things, I used to be really shocked and think, how could they do that? But as I've got older, I'm no longer as shocked as I used to be. And I no longer ask, how could they do that? Because, of course, they could do it very easily, as could I, as could you. We're all capable of the most dreadful things. In fact, it's all too easy for people to maintain a respectable front whilst they contemplate having an affair. It's all too easy to give the impression of godliness while all the time we are secretly dabbling in Internet pornography or something else. Of course, it isn't just sexual sins that people can be gripped by. It can be drink or filling the finances or gossiping or a critical spirit or addiction to, to getting our own way or simply an overbearing gross selfishness. And I imagine that all those things are going on somewhere amongst members of all souls. Because sadly, we are all inveterate sinners. All souls, along with every Christian church, is a hospital for sinners. It's not a hotel for saints. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you are a sinner? Some of us 
know that only too well. We, we know that we're a, we're a complete mess of self-centered behavior and thinking, which is not, not only screwing up our own life, but it's also hurting others. Well, take comfort. Jesus has come for you. Just look again at verse 17. It is just glorious. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the ill, the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Friends, the first step to healing and salvation is to recognize is that you are desperately heartsick and that nobody can heal you apart from Jesus. Those of us who have been Christians for a while will, of course, acknowledge that we are sinners. We all know and believe Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The issue of us is, do we, do we feel it here? Do we know it here? We know it here. But do we know it that in our heart and the core of our being? See, some of us are not particularly tempted to engage in the kind of the obvious godless sins like drunkenness and debauchery. That's just not our bag. Some of us, when it comes to praying the confession prayer, may actually struggle to think of, well, what do I need to confess? Well, if that is the case, then cry out to God to show you your sin. Because it's there. It's there. Uh, Some of us may have more obvious symptoms than others, but we all have the same fatal disease. None of us love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. We're all too turned in on ourselves to do that. We're all deeply flawed. And friends, it is a sign of growing Christian maturity that we have an ever greater appreciation of our personal sinfulness and brokenness. But it's not just enough to be made aware of our sin. We need, and this is wonderful, we need deliverance from it. And so let's now turn to consider the deliverance that Jesus brings. And the first thing we learn about this deliverance is that, that Jesus has the freedom to choose and deliver whomever he wills. Now, it was a scandalous thing for Jesus to call Levi. I imagine that Andrew, Simon, Peter, James and John were pulling their hair out. What? You're choosing Levi? You can't do that, Jesus. He's a no-good piece of trash. He's been making our life an absolute misery for years, screwing us for money. Uh, To have Levi as part of the gang will totally discredit you. I mean, nobody will take you seriously. Your popularity with the religious leaders is not great at the moment. This will finish it off. But it's characteristic of the God of the Bible to call unlikely people to himself. Just consider the background of folk like Jacob, or Moses, or Gideon, or David. 
None of them were great shakes. You wouldn't have uh, bought a second-hand car off Jacob. (laughs) Moses was a murderer. Gideon was a complete wimp. And David was a young squirt. What this story shows is that God is pleased to court himself whomever he wills. And no one person is more of a problem to God than anyone else. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't matter whether you are respectable like the Pharisees or a complete rogue like Levi. When God actually sees us, we're all pretty much of a muchness. When it comes to the bottom line... (laughs) We're all sinners. You mustn't think that uh, God chose any of us because he saw in us the potential to be a promising disciple. (laughs) That's all very bad risks indeed. But he does want to transform us and change us and to pour his love into our hearts. The only reason why any of us are in the kingdom of God is because of God's kindness and grace. No other reason. And if you are a believer following the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope you, every morning, every day, you thank him for his grace that has been at work in your life so that you know the Lord Jesus and are trusting in him. Jesus has the freedom to choose whomever he wills. Next, Jesus has the power to deliver those whom he has chosen. Uh, One of the objections that people have to uh, Christian forgiveness is that it appears to give a license to sin. You you do something wrong, uh, you're you're sorry, and you you, uh, repent, you're forgiven. And if you do it again, well, it doesn't matter, because you can be forgiven again. And that actually is gloriously true. It can be forgiven again and again. And again. But forgiveness in the Bible is much more than a, a free pardon. It's much more than a kind of wiping of the slate clean. Yes, forgiveness does involve, involve both those things, but it also involves deliverance. God doesn't just do a work for us. He does a work in us. Deliverance from the past, deliverance from the chains of sin that bind us. You see, by nature, we are all in chains, and those chains have got us firmly in their grip, which is why our good resolutions are so often ineffective. Uh, when I was a, a child, and I was feeling remorseful for giving my mother a, a hard time, um, I resolved to be very good, and not to thump my brother or raid the fridge or whatever crime I had been committing. But actually... Uh, have I tried? I could never do it. <laughs> it never worked. You see, that evil triumvirate of the, the world, the flesh, the devil, has naturally all got us firmly uh, in its grip. Now, humanly speaking, there was no chance that uh, Levi would get up and leave his job. I mean, I imagine psychologically and emotionally, he couldn't do it. He, he was trapped in that way of life. But when Jesus issued Levi with the command to follow, he was also given the power to obey. And there may be those of us who are similarly trapped. 
We have heard Jesus' call, and we know that to follow Jesus will involve a radical change to a lifestyle that there is, perhaps there is something which is gripping our life at the moment, and we just don't think we can manage it. Some years ago, I was leading a Christianity Explored course, and there was this guy on it who seemed to be both convinced and moved by the message about Jesus, and yet... Well, there was still, there was something holding him back from embracing Jesus. Come along the course, I could see he was drawn, but he wouldn't commit. So I met up with him one day, I think we played a game of squash, and, and after the game I asked him what it was that was holding him back, and he, he told me. He said one word, fear. He knew that he didn't have the power to follow Christ faithfully. Nick, he just knew he couldn't do it. And he didn't want to start something he couldn't complete. But I explained how if God asks us to do something, he gives us the resources and the power to carry it out. Anyway, this chap began the Christian life. When I last heard from him a few years ago, he was still going on strong in the Lord, rejoicing in the forgiveness and the new life that Christ had brought about in him. See, if Jesus commands us to do something, he gives us the power to do it. And so Levi was able to leave his old life of corruption as a tax collector and start his new life as a forgiven man following Jesus. So Jesus has the freedom to choose whomever he wills. He has the power to deliver those he has chosen. And then finally, Jesus calls those whom he has delivered to a life of obedience and service. So Levi, the tax collector, became Matthew, the writer of the gospel. Now, it's important to realize that when we become a Christian, we don't become kind of independent free agents. We're released uh, from a slavery that is uh, kind of devilish in order to submit ourselves to a slavery that is, that is glorious and holy and divine. We always remain a slave. We simply have to choose which slavery we want. And the question is, do we want to be which we will naturally be a slave to the prevailing values of the society, the world in which we live, the corruption of our own nature, which we've just turned in ourselves, and to the spiritual forces of evil, which leads to destruction? Or do we want to be a slave, a follower, a servant of Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life, the freedom to be what God created us to be, to enjoy the knowledge of God's presence with us by his spirit and to have the glorious hope of eternal life and friendship with God. We are either one or the other. So what then is the proof that someone has been forgiven? Well, the only proof that I have been forgiven is not that I've been baptized or confirmed, is not that I actually, even that I'm an enthusiastic member of all souls, or that in the past I've had some great spiritual experience. No, the proof that a person is forgiven 
is that they get up and follow Jesus. That they are active disciples. See, following Jesus isn't a passive thing. It's not like following a friend on Twitter or Facebook. It involves yielding our whole life to Jesus. So if you are following Jesus today with all the strength that he has given you, then that is the evidence that in the days past, God has drawn near to you and called you to himself. There's no other proof. And actually, conversely, if we're not actively following Jesus today, well, then the chances are that we haven't been forgiven. And that we're still lost in our sin. But if that is the case, please, please, don't despair. Don't despair because remember Jesus' punchline. Who's he come for? Who does he want? Who's he happy to hang out with? He hasn't come to call the righteous but sinners. He is for you. He's for every single one of us. And he calls us. To come to him and to allow him, the great doctor, the doctor who can deal with a sinful human heart, to begin his work in us to change us, to make us more like Jesus. Let's have a moment of quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came into the world to call sinners. And thank you that when you call us to follow you, you give us the power to do that. Lord Jesus, please continue to work your transforming power within us so that we may follow you faithfully. Amen.